Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Are you in fashion? fashion? Fashion. Did you see what she's wearing for Tom's shoes? I'm Sonia Sly. My heels are killing me. Um, but I was told I have a backstage pass. You will need to get the right pass to get behind me, Pam. Look, I'm I need sorry. to go. Code red, code red, code. We have a situation. I'm taking you inside the fashion industry to discuss trends, the reality behind the glamour, and the highs and lows of a fast-paced industry that never stops. Red Bull is one of our partners and they're like, hey, we want to do a really cool novel idea, something hasn't been done before, what have you got? And let me remind you, this is before Chanel did their supermarket show, okay? So I'm talking two or three years before. Just before you think we knocked them off. Mark um, Moore is the founder of New Zealand label Stolen Girlfriends Club. And we're at ID Fashion Week in Dunedin, in front of a live audience. And Mark's talking about a flash mob fashion show at a New World supermarket a few years ago. We had it uh, midday, and I remember that was the least attended fashion show we'd ever had, because it was <laughs> the middle of the day. I reckon we had about 50 people. So we get to the supermarket, and then the music starts cranking, and everyone's like looking around, going, what the hell's happening? And all these lovely old Dorises are shopping and freaking out. And these models just start snaking around the, the aisles. Um, that fashion show went all around the world. It was on the news, it was on Vogue.com, Marie Claire, Harper's Bazaar, Elle. It looked amazing. And one of my Mark has a long-time love affair with fashion, which started as a kid growing up in Raglan. You could say this is a backstory to the brand. I always kind of cared about the way that I looked in some weird way. I got brought up with a mum, so a solo mum, and she was really into fashion and how she looked. Growing up with that, I was always quite inspired to kind of look, look as cool as I could. She would always make my clothes because we didn't have much money. We started with nothing and so I always had quite an opinion on what she was making for me and how I'd wear it and what colour it would be and stuff. And I wore a lot of her clothes, sort of around 10 to 12, I remember starting to... I guess when I grew up a little bit and I could fit her clothes, I'd be wearing her military shorts and stuff like that. And At school, were you a bit of a, a rebel? Because there is, you know, like a rebellious edge to stolen girlfriends. So. I, I guess. I mean, I'm a really nice person. I've got good manners, so I don't think I'm that rebellious but up until about 12 or 13 I was quite a, a mama's boy I was quite well behaved and quite a quiet little guy and then as soon as I hit my teenage years I don't know what, what happened I turned into this real arsehole um, yeah I remember going to school and I, I went to Raglan area school it's got like 400 pupils from age 5 through to form 7 all in one school it's pretty cool I remember they were mufti and they for some reason bought in hey we're going to do school uniforms and for about a month, I would just not wear the uniform. I'd come to school in mufti. I'd just get sent home every day and I'd go surfing. So I turned into this little badass and I used to throw toilet paper, like bombs at the science teacher and I got suspended for like three days. I came around eventually. I think I just hung out with the, the bad guys. I mean, even though you, you were kind of rebelling, were you quite studious? Not really. I had this weird problem with being told what to learn and when to learn. I had this one English teacher who was really cool. He understood young people and you could relate to him and that almost made me want to learn. So 
English was one of my favourite subjects. Art was pretty cool, although my teacher was pretty crazy. And then woodwork. I loved woodwork, it was so good. Barely passed, like, school certificate, failed maths. Like, surfing, was that a possible option for you in terms of a career path? Like, yeah. it seemed like that was the one thing that you were kind of dedicated to. I was a full-time surfer for close to, like, eight years. I had, like, five sponsors that were financially supporting me. I called it semi-pro because in New Zealand it's, it's a small market and all the brands don't have big budgets like in Australia or America. But I was making a living out of just following the surf tour around New Zealand and doing the odd trip for magazines overseas and stuff. There were times where I was like, ooh, could I be an actual pro surfer and do the international circuit where there's more money? And there With was the reality like, of making a living on the surfing circuit looking not so glamorous, Mark turned to his next love, fashion. But it came as a result of... 2002-2003, I had a bad sort of snowboarding accident. I couldn't surf for about close to two years and ended up having to have surgery in my lower back. And it was in that time where I was just losing my mind, so depressed. Mum was like, pick up the paintbrushes and get creative again. You haven't done it for ages. So I did that and put together this, uh, an art show, I guess, 12 paintings. The theme was Stolen Girlfriends Club because I'd met this girl and her ex-boyfriend was a total arsehole. So I came up with this fictional theme of this kind of club or group of guys that would go around and steal these girlfriends away from shitty relationships. Super idealistic and romantic. And I made these 12 pieces of art. Some of them were windows pulled out of villas and some of them were canvases, all acrylic, like house paint and stuff. Knew nothing about art. And Oyster Magazine got wind of it and they liked the look of it, so they decided to sponsor and present it. A one-night show and all the artwork sold in one night. Everyone loved the name. And I think that's why the artwork sold. It was like a brand. Well, I don't think the art was that good, to be honest. Hopefully no one in here bought it because it was quite overpriced. There was one canvas. It was about four or five foot tall canvas, quite big stretch canvas and it had a, a kind of an outline of a, a beautiful girl and pastel colours I'd watered down so they were all dripping off her and then it just said life after Stolen Girlfriends Club and she sort of had this smug happy look on her face. Okay, so it definitely set the tone for what the brand is today. Yeah I think so. When I was growing up I met this guy called Gavin who uh, ran a brand called Town and Country in the 90s and it was like the top, one of the top three surf brands in New Zealand and he was always like telling me a brand is everything. You know, without a brand and a story, the clothes are meaningless. Like, you need to have a story behind that that people want to buy into or a club that people want to be a part of. So I was always a firm believer, like, power is in the brand. And in some weird way, that art show just had a brand by, by accident almost. Me and my friend Mark Luke. launched the Stolen Girlfriends label with friends Dan Gosling and Luke Harwood back in 2005. It was something of an adventure. They made their way into the industry through a flow of ideas and backyard banter. I don't know if I'm ever unsure of something. Like I, I often think creatives, and especially like good ones, can often be quite unsure of themselves. It's good to like ask other people's opinion, and quite often in the office, if we're stuck on something, we'll ask, we'll almost do a vote or something, like, and it's pretty loose. How has the relationship changed, you know, working with your friends, how has it changed as, as the business has evolved, because you, you know, you've passed the 10-year mark too, and at times, has the relationship ever felt like it was fraying at the edges? Good know? question. Yeah, for sure. Me and Luke were best friends, I would say we're not best friends anymore especially as you get more commercial success, there is pressure that comes with that. And when there's pressure, people start disagreeing and you want to take the business this way, someone else wants to go that way. So there are casualties involved, I think. Luke's more of a silent partner now. He's based in LA. He's got a cafe business that he's trying to get off the ground in New York and LA. 
me and Dan have a really good relationship. I don't know how, but we've maintained a good, like, I'd call him one of my best friends. He doesn't work in the business 100%. He's got like five other businesses he has to work across. So we get Dan in on, a, on, an, on an hour on a Tuesday Arvo or something, if we're lucky, if he's flying by. And then he sort of does big picture kind of things with me. What's a big picture look like to you? We had no idea. We just winged it the whole time. That's my thing. I just cannot plan for the life of me. So we've always taken it sort of each season as it came. Oh, people like it. Oh, wow, people hate it. So it's just this sort of zigzagging. Because often for designers, you're working like well ahead. So if you're kind of someone who's always in the moment, is that kind of a challenging aspect of the industry? To so hard for me. Really? I battle with it, yeah. We're just about to start doing winter 18, and I mean, that's like crazy to me. But it's how we have to do it, to deliver on time to stores and stuff like that. So what do you find propels that inspiration or the impetus to think creatively? Because when there's that pressure, it is really hard to be creative sometimes, you know? I get my best ideas when I'm under pressure. It's when I don't have deadlines and stuff. Turn into this, like, just uh, lying a bit idle for too long. I, I need to be really crazy busy or not at all. And then if I'm not at all, I need to go surfing and not work. Do you feel like the brand, you're in your 12th year now, yep. has it kind of grown with you? And if it has, then how do you think it's changed? I would say it hasn't grown with me. It's still really young and, and a bit of a rat bag at heart. And I think that's a good thing because when we were first starting, there were a few brands that we thought were pretty cool. And then we noticed as the designers grew older, so did the product. And we were like, you know what, we don't want to be like that. We don't want our product to age with us. Our product and our brand is young at heart. That's our target audience. There's no age, we're not ageists. So we need our product to remain young at heart. And I really feel like it stayed like that. And there's a real passion that I have with working with young people. And maybe that keeps me young by association. And when did you know you wanted to do men's and women's wear? From the get-go. So the original idea was girls wearing boys' clothes. I remember when I met my, my first like proper girlfriend, she stayed the night, and then the next day she had sort of nothing to wear, you know. She had her town clothes. She just chucked on one of my T-shirts, and then that was it. I was like, that's so cool. Let's make T-shirts guys can wear and their girlfriends can wear too. I mean, that's the bones of the brand and the collection. Around the peripheral of that, we have a real sexy side and a real tough side. And the tough side comes from the androgynous part of the collection. Now, staying on top of your game in the fashion industry is really important. What do you feel is something that you're always keeping in the back of your mind, or do you actually have a specific kind of strategy? One thing that's kept us going, I think, is we're, we've always been really hungry. We are never content or smug with what we've done. What else can we do? I'm always asking that question, which can be dangerous sometimes. So that's been important, though, to always want to strive to, to do the best you can and do the best work you can. And I wouldn't say we're on top of the game. It's or even a, on top of your own game. I feel like we're driving this out-of-control car sometimes, and it's just like you're just trying your hardest to keep it on the road, and at any one time it could just veer off the road. And that's kind of what it's like being in the fashion industry. And everything's moving so fast, so you're thinking on your feet and you've got to make the right decisions each time. And you've got to be intuitive. And part of being intuitive now is also making sure that you have a captive audience on you know, social media and Instagram. And you've got 64,000 followers here. How do you feel about it? I always about... think it's not enough. But... Really? Yeah. How I'm do you feel like, about well, everyone it? Everyone else has got way more than us. That's a bad trap. It's horrible. How do you feel when you do one post and it's maybe not as successful as the previous one. Do you, do you sit there and analyse and go, well, what could I be doing better? I kind of cry. 
go into a room and just have a moment and ask why. It scares me actually because I'm 40 something and for that sort of thing to affect me the way it does, I'm like, how's this going to affect kids growing up with this? This is heavy. If I'm, I'm a grown man and I get like teary, I'm like, why did that post not rate as high as the last one? Like, I thought the content was better. Like, and there is that pressure though, isn't there? Like, if you're why didn't I put a kitten into it? You know, or a cupcake. Why don't I whack a cupcake into that photo and get a thousand likes? People are always on their phones nowadays, and is it a distraction for you to be on social media? Do you find that you get caught in that trap? Yep. I'm doing about two or three hours a day, I reckon. I need to be. I think it's important. You need to remain relevant, and people like my mum and stuff, get off your phones, God, you're not even present. Like, you've got to be present. And I'm like, well, we're connected. I'm connected to someone in the world, like, right now. This is cool. You need to embrace it and as long as you're using it in a positive way. Have you found that it's really helped you to gauge who your audience is and what is or isn't working? A little bit. I think there's sort of a, a certain demographic that's probably a little bit more diehard with the, using the social media, and I feel like our brand's got a, a young demographic at the core with buying the T-shirts and stuff, but we have like women in their 50s and 60s shopping at our stores a lot, and they're the ones that are buying the the high ticket, the leather jackets and stuff, which keeps us in business. But I don't know if they're like diehard on social media. Now fashion is always a movable feast because everything's changing at a rapid pace. So what's one of the, the biggest mistakes that you feel you've made along the way? Oh, good question. So many mistakes. Um, I think mistakes make you a better designer, better business owner. One of the mistakes, I'm going to be really honest here, it feels quite silly to admit, and I don't think many designers would admit it, but... There was around 2013, 2014, and I really, when I look back at our body of work, I really think we lost our way creatively, and that was me. I kind of, you know, we'd done this androgynous thing for years, and then I started to get, like, uh, influenced by new trends that were emerging and new brands, and it wasn't us. And we, we had a go at doing some more feminine ranges and stuff for a while, and they didn't sell that well at retail. Probably the worst two collections were 2014. When I look back, I'm like, why did we do that? We went off our path. We learned a really valuable lesson, especially when the sales weren't that good. And then we came back to what the brand is known for. And it's really easy to get led off your own path, especially when you're paying attention to what everyone's saying and new trends are emerging. And when new trends come out, new brands come out. And a new brand is hot for two to three years and everyone talks about it. And then all of a sudden they don't talk about you. And you're like, OK, maybe we should try what they're doing. Oh, God. And you, it's really dangerous. I mean, that is a bit of a trap, isn't it? So, but when you're on you know, the likes of Instagram, there's always those new trends that you're sort of seeing and they're yeah. kind of permeating your brain, probably. And, yeah. it's like, you know, and there is, you're affronted by it. So yeah. in many ways, it's hard to escape that, isn't it? It's really hard. You need to almost be like a magpie. So you pick the trends and things that resonate with you or your brand and you take them and you put your own spin on them and put them back out. What's that um, film director, Jim Jaramouche? He said, we live in an, an age or an era when everything has been done. So now it's about you take ideas that have been done that resonate with you, you put your own spin on it and you put it back out. And it's not where you take ideas from, it's where you take ideas to. And I love that. I had a conversation the other night about some new designers' work and stuff and critiquing the new designers. And like, oh, I've seen that in Balenciaga in 2006. And I'm like, man, everything has been done. If there's someone that invents a new idea out of just thin air, show me, because I'd love to see it. If everything's been done, and it has, then why not take the idea and match it with another idea that's been done and put them together and make something new, and that's authentic.
And as long as you're being true to yourself, then yeah, that's when it feels best. if it resonates best. with you, that's all good. Now, of course, we know that there's been a big shift towards sustainability and, you know, ethical clothing and production. How does that affect you and Stolen Girlfriends Club and the forward movement of the brand? That documentary, True Cost of Fashion, I saw that and that freaked me out. I actually cried a little bit, maybe. It shocked me, the impact that fashion has, or at least overproducing it, like fabric, taking like a couple hundred years to break down, and that really like freaked me out a little bit. Also, children working in the, in the workplace and factories and stuff in places like China and India, Bangladesh. So that sort of sparked our interest in becoming child labour-free as a brand, at least with our factories. We're still on that journey, so the goal is to eventually be child labour-free right back to the point of sourcing like your buttons and stuff and trims, which is the hardest thing to do. But we've just had like three factories signed off, which is an amazing feeling. A lot of people don't know this, but we are making 30 to 50 units in most styles. Like, we are not overproducing. And if something sells like 100 units for us, we're like, oh my God, we've cracked it. And you want to do another 50 units on top for spare stock. Uh, mid-season. We bang on like 10 or 20 units and we keep it really tight because we want the product to sell and we don't want there to be dead stock that eventually just devalues each season and ends up as landfill somewhere, God forbid. Yeah, I think the overproducing thing is a really big problem. I go to these huge chain stores and I'm in America and it just saddens me. I'm just like, there's too much product here for people to even consume. Like, even if it is like $8 for a t-shirt and that t-shirt costs 8 bucks. What, it, what is that costing the person that's making it? Are they even getting paid? So where are your factories based and how long did it take to research to find the right ones? We've got a pretty mixed bag. So originally in the mid to late 2000s we were all New Zealand, all New Zealand focused with our production and then as there was a little bit of pressure for our price point to be a little bit lower to sit in line with um, the core demographic, we started to look at offshore options and then we looked at China initially, which seemed like the easiest one because most people knew more about the Chinese like, market and stuff. It was pretty crazy changing our business from manufacturing onshore to offshore. So China, India, Italy, New Zealand. So we've just recently brought a bit back to New Zealand, like really high-ticket specialty items that we want to be really across the production of. Like we're talking jackets that are like 2700 bucks, the most beautiful jackets you can get, and so we need to be on top of that production. Remaining relevant and also having fun with the brand is important. On their 10th anniversary, during New Zealand Fashion Week, they sent a model stage diving into the audience. I remember it well, as they peered up at the stage, squashed between a pregnant woman and a crowd of bouncing teenagers at the St James Theatre in Auckland. This one. That was a real scary moment, though, um, for that was St it? James show. I was shitting my face. Was that not planned? Uh, it was, but I just didn't know if the guys were going to be there at the end of the catwalk to catch her, and the girl was a bit nervous about doing it. Imagine walking along a catwalk and then jumping off the end into the crowd and just hoping like someone's going to catch you. Like, and I was like, she's not going to do it, she's going to get there and just turn. But then she just started getting a run-up and then off she jumped and <laughs> she, they caught her and then she was like, put her arms in the air and we're like, yes! Oh, she, was was really, cool. she was really confident in the perfect model. But rock and roll antics and stage diving aside, the fashion industry is a serious business that presents plenty of challenges, even for a brand that's been around for more than a decade. Biggest challenge moving forward. For us, our biggest challenge is cash flow and I reckon most people that have brands and young designers will <laughs> agree with me on that. 
getting your cash flow sorted so you can afford to pay for your bloody clothes on time and deliver them on time. That's always been our biggest challenge and it will be until maybe one day we get an investor if anyone out there want, wants to invest in a fashion label. We've never had investment so we've always started you know, $4,000 on a visa back in 05 and just tried to make it work the whole time. Cash makes the car go faster. You know, it makes you achieve things quicker and you can s- sort of do export and be in different markets and get your PR sorted in another country and all that stuff. So that's our biggest challenge. We had to really withdraw stuff back around the recession because we were really extended. It was a dangerous time for us. We had like uh, sales and PR showrooms in Tokyo, New York, London, Sydney, and all these markets were barely like giving us enough sales to even a- afford paying for the showroom fees. It was crazy. And then the whole market crashed and we were so exposed and we really had to just quickly bring everything back to New Zealand. We were like delivering late all the time. We were getting cancelled orders. People were getting pissed off with us. So we're like, let's bring it back to New Zealand, focus on our craft, take a holiday, and then when the market starts getting better and we learn more about it, we're going to go back out there. And that's an opportunity to me. And I think this year we're just really getting our production to a sort of a certain degree of quality that I think is going to be great for international, and that excites me. So challenges and opportunities right there. And just a last question, especially because there are lots of um, young designers in the audience. What's something that you learnt along the way that you'd like to pass on? So I didn't study fashion, so I don't, I'm not too sure what the tutors teach you and stuff, but one thing, when you start, think about who you're making clothes for. Like, what's that girl or that guy look like? Or, you know, what age are they? What are they into? Really visualise that person. We never did that, by the way. We've only learned that in the last few years. But <laughs> the second thing, make sure you have a product or a category of product that can be bought worn, loved by a wider audience than what your core brand is about. That is the key thing to your survival. Without that, you will not get the sales and the volume you need to fund your passion and fund doing the cool things. So a good example for us, I love doing the fashion and the shows. I love doing the women's wear and stuff like that. Jewelry, that's our category that we're able to stock amazing like jewellery chains around New Zealand and they have this wide market that they introduce to our brand. So they see our fashion and they see our shows and they go, God, that's pretty crazy. I'd never wear that. But there's something about that brand that's kind of cool and I want to be in that club. I'll go and buy a bow ring or a a bracelet from the jewellery store and I'll be part of that club. And so the jewellery for us opens us up to a much wider audience and gives us the, the volume and the sales we need to fund continuing to do the fashion shows. And it's not selling out, but figure out what that category is. Is it perfume? Is it bags? Shoes? Eyewear is a good one. Or is it a category of clothing? Jeans, T-shirts. Get that sorted and you'll be fine. That was Mark Moore, the founder of Stolen Girlfriends Club. You've been listening to My Heels Are Killing Me. I'm Sonia Sly. To find out more or to listen again, head to our podcast page on the rnz.co.nz website.